0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to this edition of Project Next, the podcast that illuminates the future of marketing and communications. I'm your host, Brian Martin. Every week, I'll be sitting down with some of the smartest people I know, people who are doing really cool things with technology for marketing and communications, people who are doing advanced work that's way beyond my pay grade. You can consider this your Spotify playlist for all types of exciting new thinking and doing. Today, we're discussing open collaboration, Originally called crowdsourcing because it involves outsourcing work to a crowd, this model of co-creation has caught on and evolved. It's now embraced by companies seeking a wide range of creative and engineering solutions. It has become the backbone of innovation and new ways of working. There are few people who are smarter or more equipped to discuss this topic than John Windsor. Welcome, John. Hey, Brian. John, you're the founder and CEO of OpenAssembly, a strategy and innovation consultancy. You've started and sold a handful of companies, including Victor's and Spoils, which was prominent in the advertising and creative development circles. You are an innovator, investor, advisor, best-selling author, and you recently became a visiting executive at Harvard Business School. Wow, that's a lot. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So let's start with how did you first get interested in the notion of crowdsourcing?
1: Mm, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that, I started working on. I, I owned a bunch of magazines, and Women's Sports and Fitness was a magazine. And it's kind of incredible to think about now that we bought Women's Sports and Fitness out of bankruptcy. But in 1989, nobody except for Nike would put a woman in an ad in this women's sports magazine. Reebok and Adidas, everybody wanted to put men in, in the ads. And they actually it's said, crazy. "Yeah, it's crazy, right?" They they actually said if we wanted to put women in ads, we could actually remake the ads at our cost for the magazine. And so I, I didn't understand that, and I was super interested in the fact that we had some bigger competitors, uh, Self and Shape and magazines like that. And some of the things that really stood out in some of the research we did was that it looked like our readers actually influenced up to 12 people. And so what we saw was that, you know, if if you think about it in the yoga studio, it's like our readers were the yoga instructors and the other, you know, readers were the class participants. So we really, you know, thought about that. and, And because of that kind of paradigm, we were starting to sell a lot of advertising and it started to work really well. But still it felt like, you know, I I was really interested in how agencies would extract so much money and you know, the marketing industrial complex would extract so much money from brands. And by the time it got to us, our little women's sports and fitness, it was such a small bit amount of money. When I sold that company, I was hanging out in in Mexico surfing and read a book called Diffusions of Innovation by Everett Rogers. And it's a book from the fifties, and essentially in it he was trying to figure out how to diffuse um, hybrid corn seeds. Like, how do you distribute hybrid corn seeds into farmers so that they would actually scale across the farms? And so what he found was that he'd give it to innovators that it doesn't work because it's like, oh, Brian, he's always super innovative. I can't ever do anything like him. You know, you would be the guy in the community that people would be scared of trying new things. You'd have the new tractor, the new truck. But then there were these other people called early adopters that were kind of opinion leaders, and that helped cross that chasm, as Jeffrey Moore used to talk about. So we were really interested in that, and, and we decided to take a group of women and put them at the top of the marketing funnel. And instead of trying to be an audience, we'd actually be kind of a place for research and, and design and you know marketing inspiration. And so we became a strategy and research company. In this company, I called uh, Radar Communications. I wrote a few books on co-creation and came up with this term called anthrojournalism, which was kind of anthropology meets journalism. You know, anthropologists are really good at going to get the stories, and journalists are really good at telling the stories, and could you match that up? And that kind of led me to, you know, connect with Alex Boguski and Mm -hmm. when we merged kind of Radar with with Crispin and and that whole thing took off. But at the core, it was, you know, how could we put the customer's voice and co-create with customers for brand solutions and for innovation ideas And then that led to a project we did, you know, together. I mean, I knew Jeff Howe, the author of Crowdsourcing, and helped him write the book because I'd written a few books on co-creation. It was really an inspiration that Alex and I came up with together that we did this project, Brahma Motorcycles. And we crowdsourced, you know, some creative for Brahmo. And at the time, it was super controversial because we were the creative agency of the decade. And how could the creative agency of the decade crowdsource creative? And so it caused all this stir. And, and that's what really interested me. When I, when I saw how much tension it caused in the marketplace, I was like, ooh, that's a cool idea. <laughs> so how does crowdsourcing work generally? It's definitely morphed over the years. I think, you know, before crowdsourcing really was all contest oriented and there's still a big component of contest driven stuff but i think what we're seeing uh, a couple of things so if you think about the hierarchy right crowdsourcing is a really really interesting tool and that ladders up to a process that we call co-creation you know it's creating with other folks and then really that's underneath the philosophy of open open innovation or open open creativity or whatever that is and that really, we're trying to think about it in the, in the context of creating a, a human cloud around around organizations, right? So if you think about a two-by-two, two, right, which Harvard loves to mm-hmm. use, are the, you know, the kind of lower left hand on the X, Y axis would be kind of W2 employees, a few employees. So traditional, right? If you go up on the X axis, you're really thinking about crowds, right? But still W2. So how can you use internal crowdsourcing to empower your employees to create new ideas, to create marketing to do whatever, and then on the y axis it's really going from W2 to 1099 so that would be kind of in the lower right hand corner be more like freelancer.com you know interestingly freelancer.com, which is a out of Australia, has 28 million folks on their platform Wow yeah, which is crazy, and they do a lot of things that a lot of agencies do and one of the most interesting facts I've heard from them is that 70 percent of Fortune 1000 companies work with freelancer.com. Interesting thing is the only 20 to 30 of those companies even know they're working with freelancer.com. So the that's enterprise hilarious. side is brand new, right? Yeah. But what's happening is that somebody in the mid-level is going, oh, my God, I got a deck to due tomorrow. How the hell do I do it? And they go on to freelancer and find somebody really good to do it and, and get it done. And then what you see in the upper kind of right-hand quadrant, is that's the kind of traditional thing we think about in crowdsourcing a like contest-oriented so that's, you know, you take a, a project or a problem, you reframe it in a way that might work in a crowd situation. You put up some prize money and, you know, it's really prominent still and it works really, really well in the engineering world. So you've got platforms like Topcoder and you've got platforms like Kaggle, that's owned by Google now, that really are tremendous results. Sure. So.
0: so what companies aren't aware that they're working with crowdsourcing platforms, but there are a small handful of companies that are
1: working with them. Right. What's holding the rest back? Well, I think it's an adoption issue, right? I think that, you know, when, when we sold Victors and Spoils to Havas, David Jones and I had this idea that we were going to turn Havas into a big crowd company, that we would have this. You know, so if you go to a client, you'd say, oh, well, here's your team. But really this team just curates the work from 20,000 people, and we'll have a platform, and we'll put up briefs on that platform. And so you get the best talent across the whole holding company. And at first, what we thought was going on is that we didn't do the right incentives, right? We didn't incentivize the 300 CEOs across the globe. But what, you know, Harvard did a couple of case studies on, David and I, and, and what we realized working with the professors is that wasn't really about incentives, it was more about identity. So it's organizational identity and personal identity. And I think that's what really affects it. And I think that's slowed down the adoption. So that's one thing we're really focused on at Open Assembly is trying to figure out, first of all, how do we create the right kind of lexicon, the right kind of language to make crowd and, and open innovation less threatening um, and more consistent. So instead of saying crowdsourcing, like we're helping build a human cloud. Um, and, and, you know, and then get rid of other terms. And I think the marketing world has the same problem, but we throw around terms of disruption and transformation, innovation. And for mid-level incumbent folks, that's scarier than hell, right? So, so kind of getting rid of that. And then the second thing is how do you build these kind of centers of excellence and, and prove statistically... That the economics work. One of the problems in the market that we see on the engineering side is that actually they work too well, right? A lot of times, I mean, case after case shows that these innovations, you know, especially some of the stuff that NASA's done, is it just you know somebody like the, the Department of Homeland Security will do a project and get such good success that it scares the hell out of them. And there's a great. Tell me more about that. Like, well, so NASA has a thing called Center of Excellence of Collaborative Innovation. And a few of the projects they've run are really, really interesting. And, you know, in some NASA projects, some outside. So one project that NASA did is, you know, we have astronauts in space and they're outside the space station that, you know, solar flares can kill them, right? The radiation put out by solar flares can kill them. So over a, a dozen years or so, the best heliophysicists in the world got to a point where they could actually predict sun flares within an hour to two, That wasn't really enough time to get an astronaut back in if they're doing hard work outside. And so that was one of the projects they were trying to figure out, is how do we extend the life or extend the time that we have to predict sun flares so we can get things to happen. There's also all kinds of issues with radio frequencies and things like that. They put a contest up on a platform called TopCoder, and in two weeks a guy from New Hampshire who is a radio engineer solved the problem The request from NASA was that they kind of increased it from one to two hours to three to four hours. That was the hope. And then 50% efficacy, you know, can you be right 50% of the time? And this guy working in his basement all alone in 20 days, he came up with an algorithm that produced a prediction time of eight hours and at 85% efficacy. Wow, And I think what we're seeing in that, here you've got somebody that you know, has tangential knowledge, right? He really, really understands radio frequency, but he's not a heliophysicist. So his language is a little bit different. He understands the problem. And then he has all this cognitive surplus. He's retired. So he just hangs out and plays on his computer, and it's a super interesting problem. So that's just one of lots of different things. Why is it that crowdsourcing
0: is so effective in the engineering world and, I guess, in the creative world? What other worlds is it useful for but untapped so far?
1: Well, I mean, I think we we kind of divide these platforms into two kinds, like one is many to many platforms. And those would be like the Airbnbs and Uber. And I think what we see is those are highly successful and highly scalable, because the power is equal, right? The, The demand side power and the supply side power, it's an individual to an individual. And so the driver, you know, rates you as a rider, and you rate them. And so there's this equal power. What we're seeing is slower scalability in the many to few platforms, right? So that's the kind of, you know, many on the supply side, but few on the demand side, like, you know, a company that wants to integrate things. I think one of the things that I'm finding really interesting in that space is that what we're seeing coming online are, are, are platforms like Workday, which is a big HR platform, that it's going to start integrating crowdsourcing into the platform. And, and my thinking is, is that's going to be a lot less threatening. I mean, we at Harvard, and, and I'm probably the worst offender of kind of making it the new great disruption You know, what we see from the HR side of things in the future of work and the gig economy is that it's just another tool. So, I think my, or at least our vision at the work at Harvard is that, you know, you'll have a dashboard that you go in every day and you'll have these tasks that you need to get done and you'll have choices on how to do those tasks. Do you want to do it by yourself? Do you want to recruit a team? Here's who's available inside the house. And then do you want to crowdsource it? And if it's crowdsourcing, here's, here's how to get that done. But what we're finding is a lot of times that You know, companies are having a problem making that leap because it's one thing for the four of us to sit around or a creative team to come up with a problem and then riff on the brief and change the brief, right? But if you're putting on a platform, it's kind of once you put it out there, it's kind of done. Right. So you've got to really bake the question. You've got to ask the right kind of question.
0: I think we see that across all the fields of innovation, that it really comes down to asking the right question. How you define the problem it's determines so much what so. you're going to get out of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, we ran a conference at Harvard not too long ago, and one of the talks that blew me away, there's a guy, Sam Kogan, who has a, a company, I think it's called Gen5, and he's a PhD physicist, and he's only in the business of helping companies ask the right questions, which is kind of cool, right? It's like, that's, that's what he does. And he gave this great speech about toothbrushes, that large toothbrush manufacturer came to him and said, we want to... Innovate the toothbrush, and um, he said, "Okay, well, so what do you want it to do?" And like, well, we want the toothbrush to remove more plaque and bacteria. So Sam thought, "Okay, that's kind of an interesting goal." So then he went away and kind of looked at, you know, is that the right question, and, and how do people use a toothbrush? And he went back and he said, "Well, that's not possible." And the manufacturer was kind of upset, and he, they said, "Well, why? Why isn't it possible?" He said, "Well, well, you know, you you put toothpaste on your toothbrush and you use it for two minutes." Right? And then you put it on the counter, and for 23 hours and 58 minutes, it's sitting on the counter actually growing bacteria and growing plaque. And so, you know, if you want a tool to actually apply a lot more bacteria to your teeth, the toothbrush is the very best tool in the world to do it with. Oh my God, I'm never going to brush my teeth I know, again. Right? So I think it's that, that's the key, right? What are you trying to ask? If it's a, I want to improve the toothbrush, or I'm, I want to improve the efficacy or the efficiency of, of removing plaque and bacteria from your teeth. Wow, so we're
0: talking about crowdsourcing, but ultimately, what we're really talking about is the future of work. Yeah, how is machine learning affecting what you're doing, and is that taking crowdsourcing to the next level now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we're in this really interesting transition phase, right? A lot of the experiments we're working with, with the Laboratory of Innovation Sciences, and so just as a background, list the Laboratory of Innovation Sciences is a collaboration between the Business School and the Medical School and the Computer Science Department at Harvard. So one of the things the medical school are very concerned with is, like, how can we help doctors be more efficient? Like, how can we get, help doctors spend more time with patients instead of behind screens or do whatever? And one of the things they're concerned with for radiology and cancer is that, you know, if you have lung cancer, a radiologist has to take between 15 and 18 minutes and mark up the boundaries of a tumor, and, you know, on a CAT scan. So every slide, marking that tumor up. And they're pretty good. On average, probably 75% of, you know, the boundaries are, are exact, but it's important, right it's like how super can you, important. right? yeah, how can you keep more tissue and so essentially the the project we ran at, at LISH was that we took a bunch of old scans, five thousand you know scans, and a bunch of doctors leaned in and actually marked those up, and those were all recorded on a website and then we had a contest for you know twenty thousand dollars to create a algorithm that could do a better job than the doctor, so we kind of knew you know okay the average is seventy five percent the best you know doctors do about eighty five percent but it takes 15 to 18 minutes. And uh, again, in 20 days, somebody from uh, Eastern Europe created an algorithm that did actually 95% efficacy in a couple seconds. So it created an algorithm that actually replaced that work. And the goal for the medical school was to say, okay, now I'm going to give you that time back to you, radiologist, to do more research, to be with patients, but kind of taking those mundane things away. So I think that's kind of the first phase that we see. We're just starting to teach a class at Harvard on AI, and one of my partners is writing a book on it right now. And there's um, a really good book out of the University of Toronto called Prediction Machines. And I think the analogy they use, which really blew my mind on like, what is machine learning and what is AI, because it's such a myst- mystical thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's really hard to understand to me. But their kind of analogy was, hey, when electricity was invented and lights were invented, you would never think about reading a book to lights, because it was way too expensive. But as the price of electricity and, and lights, you know, drops so much that it's essentially ubiquitous and we leave lights on all the time, well, same thing's happening with computing power. Like before, you just would never use computing power to do much because it was so expensive. But now it's so abundant that, you know, if you and I could do 10 experiments in a day or 10 problems in a day, a powerful comp- computer can do 10 million problems in a day. So if you're trying to run simulations to figure out how to best solve something, it's, it's just a more efficient way to do it. My sense is is that even in the creative process that what we're going to see is we're going to see that this kind of creative-enabled AI or AI-enabled creative. And I think that's really powerful. We did a project for Amazon and and Deloitte where we took a bunch of the best creatives in the world and gave them two briefs, one that was created by the chief creative officer of Amazon and the other one that was created by AI. And it was for Bay Water, Uh Um, I guess, and with the creative director from – Amazon told me is that when Bay started, they kind of got locked out of all the distribution because, you know, they have Coke and Pepsi and all the big players. So they went to Amazon and cut a better deal, better economic deal, and uh, Amazon put them into shopping carts. Anybody Mm. was buying, you know, like-minded products. Mm -hmm. And so it went from zero to a hundred and some million dollars of sales in the first year, all by just marketing through the shopping cart. But what's interesting is that by doing that, you had a phenomenal amount of data, that was based on what was real. And so I thought it was a super interesting project because the creative uh, brief was you know, the typical creative brief of, oh, it's for millennials, and it's hip, and it's you know health conscious. And then the AI-created brief was these are the actual data of who bought it and what happened, and it was really detailed. Wow. And then we gave that to a dozen of the top creatives in the world and had them experiment, not telling them which one was which. And overwhelmingly, people like the AI generated brief better than the human generated brief. Overwhelmingly.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's such potential for the marketing side of the business to do more with that. Do you have any thoughts on how a corporate communications department could use crowdsourcing to further their interests?
1: There's so many different ways. I think that, I mean, I think what you're going to see is hybrid models, right? I mean, I think what we got wrong at Victors and Spoils, and and what I see the future is, is is that well, at VNS we were an agency based on crowdsourcing principles, so we we built our own tech, and so we had this kind of internal battle between you know being a creative shop and a tech shop, and that's just you know creative directors and computer scientists or or, or software engineers, just a really bad battle or a big <laughs> battle, I guess. Yes. Um, and it happens everywhere, right? Just different two different philosophies, kind of waterfall versus agile, all those kinds of things. But, you know, I think some of the things that I've been seeing lately that really point the way to success are Deloitte Pixel, I think. We're doing a, a HBS case study on Deloitte Pixel right now. And they've done an amazing job of having a really small group of people. They have eight folks that sit above 35 different crowd platforms. So they don't build their own crowds, but they're using all these different platforms for different things. Some for research, some for design, some for marketing, some for communications, and they just know when to dip in and when to dip out and, and have a really good, they're really scaling pretty quickly. And they're seeing phenomenal results. Cool. So my sense is that that's what's going to happen is that both agencies and marketing departments are going to have just kind of community of, of crowds around them to do desk research like Ask Wonder, to do ethnographies like Over the Shoulder, to do some industrial design like Mesh One, to do some digital builds with things like TopCoder. So. Interesting. So, John, a lot going on in
0: innovation and open sourcing. What's next in that world?
1: Mm, I mean, I think that there's some interesting things going on. I think what we'll see is a merger of a lot of the open stuff with AI and, and with blockchain as well. I mean, you're going to get you know more kind of peer-to-peer custody issues and trust issues or mechanisms going on because of blockchain. You're going to see AI empower things. There's a, a really interesting company that started not too long ago, called Unanimous AI, who's actually merging, you know, uh, machine learning and, and crowdsourcing. So taking, kind of, the ability of crowds, but allowing mechanisms that make these crowds predictive, and they've had a lot of success on predicting markets and predicting horse races, and way better than you know statistical analysis would do. So or even individual crowds.
0: That's interesting. Uh, Eric Schmidt predicted that the next 100 billion dollar company will likely result from. The wisdom of many. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like they're moving in that direction. Yeah, I
1: think so. I mean, I think that's the deal, right? Is like, as we play in this space, I'm just always at awe of this kind of cognitive surplus. One of the things that's really fascinating me in that space right now is the fact that, you know, we've got places like Eastern Europe that are still lack economic opportunities, but yet people, because of the, the cost of education, have stayed in the educational system for a really long time. So you have all these kind of folks that have physics, you know, PhDs, and also computer science degrees that can solve problems just because they've had the opportunity to study that for so long, much better than folks that have full-time jobs.
0: Is that why NASA is having such success or some of the engineering companies? I know a lot of plane companies are... Are you using crowdsourcing for some of their solutions?
1: Well, you know, the whole crowd thing happened at NASA because they didn't have any budget. Like the budget got cut so badly that, and they still had a mandate to innovate. And so I think that's what's happened. And I think you'll see it more and more in corporate America just because investors are getting more, you know, demanding on costs and profitability and you're seeing not as much growth and you, so you've got to figure out what to do and new ways to do things. I get
0: asked the question from time to time about, how do you manage the inputs when you do crowdsourcing? You get, say, 10,000 responses. Right. How do you narrow that down to the find the best in the pack?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think as we learned at VNS, doing it yourself is a really, really hard thing to do. So my recommendation always would be to think about you know, the platform and then find the right platform to try to accomplish what you want to do. There's lots and lots of different platforms. There's and, hundreds of them now. Yeah. I think actually I looked on Crunchbase yesterday. It was 1,030. Are listed wow. on a crunch basis, but I think what we're seeing is that you know, especially in the agency world and the marketing world, the way that companies traditionally incentivize outsiders is by time, right? Utilization of time, like hours worked. And I think one of the things that's got to happen philosophically is that's got to be changed to tasks done. Like if you're going to hire a creative director for three months, and there's 40 tasks, that creative director might be awesome at 20 of those tasks. But probably there's somebody better in the world to do the other 20 tasks, right? So it's going to be interesting to see when companies start breaking things down by task and saying, okay, instead of a creative director for three months that does awesome on 20 and okay on 20 tasks, that I have 40 tasks and I'm going to use platforms to actually solve each one of these discrete tasks in a much more efficient way. And I think when you get that kind of you know, mental model shift, it's going, to be, it's going to get really exciting in the future of work.
0: John, you're an avid biker, skier, surfer, climber. You even set the world record for the ascent of
1: Kilimanjaro. What's next for you? <laughs> well, you know, this last three years has been very tumultuous because my my wife, Bridget, of 35 years, um, struggled with bipolar the last three and then and then passed away a year ago. Um, and, you know, I, I think for me right now, it's, it's just about kind of getting back on the horse and and doing things. I'm super grateful for, you know, all the support we've had. And I have two 17-year-old boys and we're just trying to, you know, get get things back going. It feels like, you know, I'm at that stage in my life where I've built a few companies and I've written a few books and I've had a lot of good adventures that I I feel like it's time for me to give back. And so, you know, in the work that I'm doing, I really feel like my role in this space is to be kind of the water to kind of create the high tides, to create meaning and to create more momentum for everybody, you know, in in the market. And then you know, then personally, I, you know, certainly got some goals on the bike and, and I'm, I'm starting to really get back into climbing and that's been really fun, you know, and then I've got this kind of ambition to go surf some big waves. <laughs> <laughs> those are kind of the three big things, personally.
0: Well, thank you for making time to join us today after you've, you've, it's been a rough, long year for you.
1: Yeah, it's been good. You know, I think through those difficult times, you learn a lot about yourself and those people around you that, that really, you know, that are really connected to you and, I'm really grateful for for her and everybody else around me. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Great.
0: And thank you for listening to this edition of Project Next. Until next time, I'm Brian Martin.